My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been working our way through the gospel according to Mark. Mark has 16 chapters, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. And starting in Mark chapter 11, we're really entering into the climax of the storyline of the gospel. And so you can think about it like if we were watching my favorite movie, Rocky, it would be right before Rocky has to go and fight Apollo Creed. If we were watching Star Wars, it would be right before when Luke has to go and fight Darth Vader. If for some odd reason we were watching The Notebook, it'd be right before that scene in the rain when Allie's like, why didn't you write me? And Noah's like, woman, I wrote you like every day. We're really into the climax of the storyline. And even if you were just looking at how the book of Mark is structured, you'll be able to tell that we're entering into something different. We're entering into something really significant. Because Mark chapters 1 through 10, Mark devotes to describing Jesus' earthly ministry, which took a period of about three years. And then starting in Mark chapter 11 through 16, for six chapters, for over a third of the book, Mark devotes to telling about Jesus' last week on earth. And so for 10 chapters devoted to three years versus six chapters devoted to one week, as if to say, this is it. This is what it's all about. Everything that's been happening so far is a lead up to this. Jesus' last week of life, you might know it as the Passion Week. It starts off with Jesus entering into Jerusalem at Passover. At this time in Jerusalem, the population would swell to about two and a half million. And over 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed in hopes that God would forgive their sins. But we know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. And so Jesus entering into Jerusalem to be God's only one and perfect spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world really is the climax of this story that we call the story of redemption. Let's read together. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, at first glance, everything seems to be in line with what should be happening. 
Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus is the Messiah that has been promised from centuries upon centuries ago, and he is finally here to be the salvation of his people. And us, having the benefit of knowing the end of the story, we know all that's happening, right? But the crowd here, at least on the surface, they seem to know what's happening as well because they see Jesus and they start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Well, Hosanna comes from the Hebrew, where, Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana, which means save us, rescue us. It's from Psalm 118, Psalm 8, 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That phrase in verse 25, save us, is Hoshiana. It meant save us, rescue us. But it was also a statement of trust in God to provide that rescue, to provide that salvation. And so it meant save us and rescue us, but it meant more than that. It meant salvation has come. Salvation is here. And so as thousands upon thousands are entering into Jerusalem at Passover to make sacrifices for their sins, they see Jesus, they point at him, and they start shouting, salvation, salvation is here, salvation has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which meant that this is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one that we've been promised. They knew their scriptures. They knew Psalm 118, and they were making that connection. They were shouting these things and they were taking off their coats and spreading it on the road. It was an old ancient gesture, a custom that showed submission. It meant you could walk on me. You could step on me. I am below your feet. And they start taking palm branches and laying it before Jesus. It was a practice that celebrated a victory of a military king. On the surface... All seemed well in Jerusalem. All seemed right in Jerusalem. This seemed like the proper coronation of their King Jesus. You see, the crowd, they loved Jesus. They were passionately singing and worshiping Jesus. They even knew the scriptures. They were saying proper things about Jesus. Hosanna, he is salvation. He is the one that we've been waiting for. In a lot of ways, I bet it looked like a worship service at the Austin Stone when we're singing passionately, when we're worshiping, we're expressing our love for him, when we're speaking his word, everything seemed to be as it should be, but something was deeply wrong. Something was deeply wrong. Well, how do we know? We know because by the end of our passage in Mark, the crowd had dispersed as if to say, well, that was a good worship service. I'm tired now. I think I'll just go home. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't that they just dispersed and went about their business. We know that in just a few days, just a few chapters later in Mark 15, we see the same crowd shouting. But instead of shouting Hosanna this time, they will be shouting crucify him. Crucify him. Shouting Hosanna one moment, but the very next moment shouting crucify him. Let's kill him. Let's be done with him. Well, how can that happen? How could that be? Why did the crowd respond like this? 
Because what's happening at the heart level, below the surface, when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, the crowd thought that Jesus was finally accepting his messiahship and that he was going to destroy and conquer Rome, kill all their enemies, set them free from their enemies, and establish an earthly kingdom. You see, when they were crying out Hosanna and they were crying out for salvation, they didn't have their personal salvation from sin in mind. They had in mind a national restoration, a political revolution. This had been their messianic hope all along. And so when they saw that Jesus wasn't going to give them what they wanted, they realized that he wasn't the Messiah that they had been waiting for, and so they dispersed. And many even turned violently against him. When you see the crowd responding in this way, what's your response? What's your response? Is it that of disgust? Do you think to yourself, how in the world could they do that? How in the world could they do that? Or do you think to yourself, oh man, that's me. I do that. God, have mercy on me. I do that. I come on Sundays and worship him and praise him with my mouth and I curse him with my life the rest of the week. That looks like me. You know, so many times in the Bible, we see God's people act so stupid, right? They're stupid. We read through the Old Testament, we see the Israelites constantly just not getting it, complaining and not trusting, not realizing what, had, what God had done for them. And when we see the disciples throughout the Gospels, we see them constantly failing over and over and over again, right? They're arguing about who among them is the greatest when Jesus is going to the cross. We see them failing over and over again. And our first response is, stupid. These people are stupid, right? But then the Holy Spirit speaks. And we realize that's us. We do that. And the reason why it's written down for us is so that we would know we do the same thing. Because the crowd, what did they do? What were they doing? They were worshiping a Jesus of their own making. They were worshiping a Jesus of their own making. And they did this by being selective in their scripture reading and by picking and choosing for themselves what they liked about Jesus. You see, they liked all the prophecies about how this promised one, Messiah, was going to come and establish a kingdom and rescue them. They liked hearing all that. But when they got to Isaiah 53 and it said that this Messiah, the way that he was going to do it was by dying, by suffering, they didn't like that. They didn't like that. It was against their paradigm that a Messiah would suffer. You see, they liked it when Jesus healed leprosy with the touch, when he caused the blind to see and the lame to walk. They liked it when he was casting out demons and he gave them food till their bellies were full. They liked that. But when he said things like the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed, they didn't like that. They couldn't imagine that. It was outside of their paradigm. Messiahs are supposed to rule, reign, conquer. They're not supposed to die. They're not supposed to suffer. And so when he said things like, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? When they heard things like this, they didn't like him. It went in one ear and out the other. And I wonder if it just happened to you. Jesus just said, if you want to follow me, you've got to die. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to keep your life, you have to lose your life. But it goes in one ear and out the other because it's against our paradigm. See, for the Jews, the crowd in this time, it was against their paradigm to have a Messiah that was not going to establish an earthly kingdom. But for you and I today, it's against our paradigm to have a Messiah, to, to have a Savior that's not going to make us happy and give us what we want. To have a Messiah that says, no, if you want to live, you have to die. And so it goes in one ear and out the other. Well, how do we know we have a Jesus of our own making? We will praise him, but we will never suffer for him. We will live for him without ever dying for him. We will read the scriptures without ever truly obeying the scriptures. We will always seek to be happy in Jesus without ever denying ourselves for Jesus. And so when you're here on Sunday and you're singing Hosanna in the highest and you're worshiping Jesus, the question is, what kind of a Jesus are you worshiping? What kind of a Jesus are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the true Jesus of the Bible or are you worshiping a Jesus of your own making? Have you created a kind of a Prozac Jesus, a Jesus that makes you feel better, kind of a therapeutic Jesus because living in this world is hard and bad things happen and so you need a Jesus that comes along and says, it's okay, it's okay, I'm in control, I love you, I love you. This is the one that I'm personally guilty of. Because when bad things happen, like this week in Boston and in West Texas, I immediately tell myself, it's okay. God's in control. Jesus is in control. It's okay. And some may look at that and think, Holland, that's really great faith, that when bad things happen, you would say Jesus is in control. But if I were honest, many times it's not faith. Many times it's not faith, it's actually apathy. It's apathy. I tell myself these things because I don't want to care, because I don't want to feel, because I don't want to mourn with those who mourn. I just want to keep enjoying my dinner. I just want to keep watching my TV show. And so I take a little dose of my Prozac Jesus so that I can numb out the pain so that I don't have to feel the fact that this world is broken. But Jesus, was he in absolute control? Yes, absolutely. But he was willing to feel. He was willing to experience pain. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to weep. And he calls us to do the same. We ought not use the sovereignty of God as an opportunity not to care. We ought to be, as Christians, the most deeply caring people on planet Earth. Or have you created a kind of a Walmart Jesus? 
He's the place that you go to get all the things that you would want in life. But if you would go to him and he doesn't give you what you want, he doesn't give you that husband that you want, he doesn't give you that job that you want, then no big deal. You just go across the street to Target. You just look for another savior. You look for somebody else, something else that will give you what your heart really wants. But the true Jesus, the true Jesus will always give you what you need, even if it's at the cost of not giving you what you want. That's the true Jesus. Or have you created a kind of a district attorney Jesus, your own personal attorney that's going to go after all those people that's making your life miserable? But the true Jesus, true Jesus will not only point out the wrongs and the sins in the hearts of other people, he'll also point out all the wrongs and sins in your heart. And then the true Jesus is not only offering you forgiveness for those sins, he's, offer, he's also offering forgiveness to your worst enemies, the ones that have done you most wrong. That's the true Jesus. Or have you created a kind of a retirement planner, Jesus? You'll pay your dues. You'll faithfully tithe. You'll read your Bible. You'll go to church. You'll go on mission trips. You'll do everything. You'll do all of it. As long as Jesus, at the end of the day, will give you heaven. Because you earned it, right? Because you put in on it. You may never say it, but that's how you feel. But the true Jesus, the true Jesus says that our righteousness are but filthy rags to him. And if we're going to make it to heaven, it's not going to be by our merit. It's going to be by his merit. And so just like the crowd, are you worshiping a Jesus of your own making or are you worshiping the true Jesus of the Bible? George Bernard Shaw, an early 20th century playwright, once said, God created us in his image and we decided to return the favor. God created us in his image and we decided to return the favor. It's so true. That's what we do. And yet I believe one of the greatest needs of the human soul is to not have a savior that is the product of our wants. One of the greatest needs of the human soul is to not have a God that is the God of our own making. A God that we've kind of created for ourselves as a coping mechanism to live in a world that could cause us to suffer, that could cause us to experience pain, that could cause us to, de to be depressed. But the great irony, though, is that if you create a God that you believe in because he seems fulfilling to you, then he can't actually fulfill you. He can only fulfill you if he's true. But if you believe in him in spite of the fact that he doesn't seem fulfilling to you, but simply because he's true, a Jesus that you didn't make up, a Jesus with hard edges, a Jesus that you did not manufacture. Ironically and paradoxically, that's the only kind of savior that can actually fulfill you. How can a God of your own making ever contradict you? He's created in your own image. He looks like you. How could he ever contradict you? But the true Jesus, the true Jesus can contradict you and when you're hating somebody, he could stop you and he could heal you by saying, no, forgive just as I've forgiven you. The true Jesus, only the true Jesus can go against you and contradict you. And when you're going astray, tell you, no, that's not my way. That way only leads to death. Come follow me. 
Only the real Jesus can do that. W.H. Auden, the great English poet of the 1930s, went back to Christianity after being an atheist. And when his friends asked, why are you going back? He answered, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. Because he's in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. Because he's in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Goes against our paradigm, right? He's saying... I've read the New Testament, and I realize this is not a Savior anyone would have made up because no one would have made up a Savior like this. He contradicts what I want. He defies my expectations at every place. Then he's in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Therefore, he's real. And then somebody said, what about Buddha or Muhammad? And he wrote chillingly, None of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. None of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. He says, he's so real. And he's such a threat to me. A real Jesus. A real Jesus that's there because he's been raised from the dead. Who you don't want to believe in because it means losing all control. Right? If he's real, you got to do what he says. A Jesus that you don't want to believe in because it means losing all control, but you have to because you just can't deny him anymore. Only a real Jesus can change you. Only a real Jesus can transform you. Only a real Jesus can ultimately fulfill you. A Jesus of your own making will never contradict you. He will let you stay exactly where you're at, and you'll be miserable this life and the next. And so if you're struck like I was, and now you're able to see yourself in the crowd, now you're able to see yourself in the crowd, what's the hope for people like us? We, in so many ways, we just don't get it. We're selective in our embrace of Jesus. We love the singing, but we reject the suffering. What's the hope for people like us? The good news is that Jesus didn't go to the cross for people who got it. Jesus went to the cross for people who totally missed it. The good news is that the true Jesus rescues us from the Jesus of our own making. The good news is that the true Savior rescues us from our counterfeit Savior. Well, how do we know he does that? Well, the triumphal entry is told by all four gospel writers. And in Luke, we see Jesus' response to the crowd and to the city. Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus, as he was hearing the praises of his people, Hosanna, as he was hearing that, he knew he would soon hear crucify him out of the same lips. He knew that. And so he wept. And so he wept. And these tears ought not to be interpreted as, oh, poor Jesus, he just wants to love his people, but his people won't love him back kind of tears. 
but instead these are the tears of God's divine mercy. These are the tears of God's divine mercy, tears that say, I have absolutely every right to destroy you completely and to be done with you. But instead, I'm going to the cross for you. But instead, I'm going to the cross for you. Jesus, knowing that the same people who were crying Hosanna would cry crucify him, still set his gaze on the cross. He never looked back. He never wavered. Instead of hell, he gave us tears. Instead of wrath, he gave us mercy. Instead of destroying us, he destroyed himself. And this offer of Jesus' kindness, humility, and gentleness is the reason that we see him riding in on a donkey. That's the reason why we see him riding in on a donkey. It's in fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy told by Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is clearly communicating something as he rides into town on a donkey. Typically, if anybody rides a donkey into any town, you're making a statement, right? (laughs) You can laugh, it's okay. Well, first of all, He's fulfilling prophecy. He's saying he is the promised king that's coming to Jerusalem. Kings don't walk into their cities. They ride into their cities. And so Jesus, by riding into the city, he is saying, I am your king. Right? But by riding into his city on a donkey, he's communicating that he is their king, but he's not a king that would fit into any of their categories. Because a king rides into their city on a war horse with pedigree, with muscles bristling everywhere and shining and glinting in the sun, but Jesus rides in on a donkey. There's something not right about this picture. There's something even comical about a grown man riding on a donkey. Just picture that. See if that doesn't make you laugh. Kings don't ride donkeys. Hobbits ride donkeys, right? (laughs) Sancho Panza rides donkeys. Not the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But Zechariah says, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's riding a donkey to demonstrate humility, to demonstrate divine condescension. It's a picture of the whole reason why Jesus was born into the world in the first place. It's a picture of God condescending himself, picture of God humbling himself, emptying himself, taking upon himself the likeness of a servant and obeying, even obeying to the point of death on the cross. And this is the wonder of the kingship of Jesus. It is a kingship on a donkey. It is a kingship on a donkey. It is for now, meek, lowly, welcoming, seeking, forgiving, and patient. For now. It is for now a kingship that saves sinners. It is for now a kingship that offers amnesty and pardon for people like us who deserve absolutely to be destroyed. It is for now a kingship that offers salvation and not destruction. And I emphasize it being only for now Because there's coming a day, 
And perhaps soon, when the kingship of Jesus will be very different than it is now. Here's a description of the kingship that is coming as John saw it in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Instead of on a donkey, he comes on a white horse, all tatted up, written on his thigh, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Instead of forgiving, He judges and makes war. Instead of being meek and lowly, his robe is drenched with the blood of his enemies. And when the kingship of Jesus appears like that in disguise, it will be too late to switch sides. And so Paul, contemplating the brief window of Jesus' kingship where he offers pardon and amnesty. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, six now, now, now is the time of his favor. Now is the day of salvation. Church, you are living in a season of wonder. Have you thought about that? Jesus is offering forgiveness now, but he will not always. Jesus is offering salvation now, but he will not always. We're living in this brief window of a time where the kingship of Jesus is expressed in humility and gentleness and kindness. Let's not regard the kindness of the riches of God lightly. And it's this kindness of God that's inviting us to repent from worshiping a Jesus of our own making and to know and worship the real Jesus, the true Jesus. And if we repent and submit ourselves to the true Jesus, we'll be able to take part in a better gathering of a people in the days to come. We'll be able to take part in a gathering of people on a day that is to come. Not like the day in Mark chapter 11, but a day that is to come. We're gathering where we will shout salvation once again and lay down palm branches once again, but to the true Jesus, not a Jesus of our own making. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne 
throne and worship God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And who are these that are clothed in white robes? Verse 14 tells us that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. In other words, these are the ones who submitted to the true Jesus. The true Jesus that doesn't just make you feel better, give you what you want, and promises you heaven. But the true Jesus that commands us to take up our cross and follow him. The true Jesus that commands us to deny ourselves and to join him in a death like his so that we might also join him in a resurrection like his. See, these people, they suffered much. Following the true Jesus meant suffering. But then it says in verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What John is showing us here is that Submitting ourselves to the true Jesus in this world is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Submitting ourselves to the true Jesus in this world may mean hunger and thirst. It may mean being scorched by the sun. Submitting ourselves to the true Jesus in this world, looking at him, pointing to him, and saying, I am below you. You could walk on me. You could step on me. I submit myself to you. It will mean suffering. It will mean pain, it will mean sorrow, it will mean the loss of wants. But church, as hard as it may be to submit to the true Jesus in this world, I promise you, I promise you, on that day when a great multitude that no one can count is gathered, a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and we're shouting before God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then you hear the angel shout back, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. I promise you, on that day when that's happening, you'll want to be there. You'll want to be there. And I promise you, as you experience the hand of God wipe away every tear from your eyes, all the suffering, all the pain, all the sorrow, all the loss of wants, all the tears, it will have all been worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the true Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we ask that he would rescue us from the Jesus of our own making. Father, that he would break our paradigm of the kind of Messiah and the kind of Savior that we would want. But Father, show us in his true Messiahship the true Savior that we really need. And so, Lord, we long for that day. We long for that day when you will call our names. 
We long for that day when we will be numbered with the countless before your throne in front of the Lamb, singing, worthy are you. Worthy are you. To hear the angels repeat back, worthy are you. Worthy are you. We know that day is a day to come. We know that day is real. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to long for that day even more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.